Hey, this is Jared Wellman. I'm the lead pastor at Tate Springs, and this is our podcast. God is telling a story of hope and redemption. Hope and redemption. Redemption that can only be found through Jesus Christ. I hope that this is a blessing and inspires you to discover your part in God's story. Good morning, good morning. Uh, glad you are here. If you're visiting with us, it is sometimes kind of like this, not always like this. We do not have so much cowbell. Um, but we, uh, Jason, this is his final day with us, and so we're celebrating that and, uh, and worshiping the Lord, of course. And so go ahead and take your copy of God's Word with me and turn to Romans 13. And, uh, you know, I have realized as we have traversed our way through this book that Romans is the source of so many, uh, not only complicated passages, but I would uh, maybe say controversial passages as well. And so, you know, you get into the debate between man's freedom and God's sovereignty and the tension thereof, and then you get into what we're talking about today, which is everyone's favorite subject, politics. You know, everyone says, talk to me about anything but politics and religion, but that's all we ever want to talk about. And, uh, but we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus living uh, in a political context and trying to navigate our way through that. And so Romans 13 is where we're going to be. Now, if you're like me, everything, it seems, has become political. I mean, it just seems like everything has become political. Uh, you used to be able to watch a football game and uh, it just go watch a football game and eat your nachos and root for your team. But in recent years, we've not only seen it become more about Taylor Swift, which is beside the point, but we have seen it become more about things like the Pledge of Allegiance, you know. But most of us, we want to go and cheer on a touchdown, not try to start a revolution. You know, we're just trying to enjoy a football game. Uh, Even coffee uh, has become political. And it's kind of scary and sad when that happens, because if you're like me, when you start getting older, coffee becomes like the most exciting part of your day, right? And now instead of just drinking a cup of coffee, you have to think about fair trade practices, environmental sustainability, economic equality, all these kinds of things where your beans are sourced. And really, you're just trying to get a cup of caffeine, not have some kind of conversation about global economics. And so everything has become political. Our disagreements are no longer merely political. But what's happened because everything is political is it's all become personal. And your entire identity now and this is, we're talking about really in the last decade, is now wrapped up in who you voted for or in who you didn't vote for. And I'm telling you, I talk with pastors and I talk with Christians, and sometimes people come into a church and the very first question they ask is, I want to know who you voted for. And that's how they measure everything about a pastor, everything about a church, everything about a person. And so everything has become political. And I don't say this lightly, but I don't think we as a country have been this divided since the Civil War. And even in the last century, you could see that Congress had, between the parties, there was some overlapping nature there, but now there, there's no overlapping nature in all the votes. And so I don't think we've been this divided since the Civil War. And, uh, and that's, that's not all, only true for Americans, but it's, it's true for Christians. And so if you're an American, it's one thing, But if you are an American who is a Christian, then it's a whole other set of complication for us. Because it's not merely that we find ourselves disagreeing with political parties and presidents or all of the above, but we feel like that the parties and the presidents are diametrically opposed to the things of God, to the order of God, to the justice of God, even to decency sometimes altogether. And so 
This is especially, especially exacerbated when you think about what Paul says here right at the beginning of our verse, Romans 13, 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Now, I don't think there's a single person, a single Christian living in America or even outside of this country who would read that and just say, man, I'm so excited about that verse. I mean, we read it and there's this, there's this uh, pushback, this resistance to this word submit, to this idea of submission. That, that word submit there in the Greek, it conveys the idea of arranging yourself under authority. And, and it's, it's in a certain mood, the imperative mood, which highlights it as a directive, not merely as a suggestion. And so what that means for us today is that we find ourselves asking this question that is as old as time, yet as urgent, is as urgent as the emergency notification on your phone, which is this. In a world where power can corrupt, what do we do when corruption is in power? What do we do? Paul gives us some response to this question. Uh, let me just kind of set the context real quickly for us. Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11 uh, uh, Paul describes the rich theological depths of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is where he, he talks about how our, our salvation is something that is part of God's story that began way before God even said, let there be light. And so he, he just dives in and he gives us some of the richest theological um, data that we could possibly find. And uh, he talks about what it means that God is sovereign in the face of suffering, in the face of death, in the face of of trials and tribulations. And then in Romans 12, which we looked at last time together in our series, he begins to point inward and talks about what this means for us as Christians as we live out our faith really in the context of a church community like this, serving one another and loving one another and being humble towards one another. But now what he's going to do after he set kind of that foundation is he's going to talk to us about what it means outside of these walls to be a follower of Jesus understanding that God is sovereign. He's going, in other words, to apply the idea of the sovereignty of God to politics. And I hope this morning that those of us who have found ourselves politically homeless, that we would know and understand that we were never supposed to be at home in this world to, uh, to begin with, and that we are ultimately citizens and ambassadors of the kingdom of God before anything else. So what we see here is this, that the answer to this question about in a world where power can corrupt, what do we do when corruption is in power? The answer lies in this power, this transformative power of the gospel, especially, this is good news for us, especially in the context of politics. Paul knows that the gospel is not only and merely about your personal salvation, but it's also how we engage the world around us. And so our faith is not confined to the walls of the church. It spills over into every area of our life, including our interaction with the government. So here in Romans 13, Paul is going to challenge us to look beyond our lives and uh, uh, in the church and to see our role in the larger societal framework. He wants us to understand that when we leave this place, that the gospel in our, in our Christianity is not something that we just kind of practice for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings, but something that we live out every single day of our lives. And so when we live in such a way that honors God and upholds the gospel and contributes positively to the community around us, we have this reminder that the gospel has the power to transform not only our lives, but the society and the individuals around us. And this is a key point because, listen, we don't want the government leading the way for the church. We do not want the government leading the way for the church. We don't need the government telling the church how to be a church. 
We don't need the government telling Christians how to be Christians or even giving us the right to be Christians. Part of our foundational documents understands that there is a God who created people with dignity. They, the government doesn't give you that. The government just essentially recognized that. Those are two very different things. But suddenly what's happened, and Christians sometimes are on the front lines of this, is we feel like we need to give the government the authority to give us the responsibility to be the church. No, we want the church leading the way for the government, and our passage tells us exactly how to do that. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. When earthly powers falter, we find stability in God's eternal reign. So generally here in Romans 13, Paul gives us a vision of Christian living that is going to encompass our political lives. And so let's look at a few different insights he gives us. Here's the first one. Recognizing the heavenly origin of earthly power changes how we think about those who are in charge. When we recognize that the power that has been invested in those who are in governing authority comes from not themselves, but from God, it will change the way that you view those who are in charge. Look with me at the second part of verse one. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. It doesn't say there are only some that are established by God. It says there is no authority except from God. In other words, God's sovereignty is now being extended into the sphere of government, into the sphere of politics, and those which exist not only in Paul's day, but in our day, are established by God. So what we see here is this. We see the truth about God's sovereignty and God's authority and about earthly authority. But here's the other idea. The implication is that this ought to reorient how we view those who are in charge because it tells us that behind this visible facade of political and civic structures is the hand of the Almighty who in his wisdom establishes leaders throughout the earth. Now, this is important. To say that God establishes leaders is not to say that all leaders are godly, all right? And so I know the tension here. Paul understands the tension here. God knows the tension here. The presidents that we have seen in our day who have done ungodly things are not the first people who have acted contrary to God's will, okay? We have seen horrific things in history. Let me just give a few. Nero, who was a Roman emperor, he was one who reigned from 54 to 68 AD, he became infamous for his cruel persecution of Christians. It's been said that he would douse Christians in lighter fluid and set them on a pike and set them on fire, and he blamed Christians for the great fire of Rome. This is a terrible leader. God is sovereign in that situation. Joseph Stalin, he saw 20 million people perish as a result of his policies. He was a terrible, ungodly leader. In North Korea right now, we have seen detained 80 to 120,000 political prisoners in abysmal conditions because they, they just decide to do something outside of the governing authorities. We've seen Putin start a war with his neighbor for no reason at all, but he just wants more land. We've seen Hamas terrorize innocent Jews. We've seen our own country. Uh, sometimes we like to think, well, our country, you know, is this Christian country outside of the jurisdiction of all the evil we see in the world. But listen, our country is, has murdered 57 of our most innocent citizens since 1973 alone. And so when you think about that, I did the math this morning. This is the total population of 16 states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Louisiana, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Idaho, and Arkansas. You put all those states together, all of their populations, and we have killed all of those people since 1973 alone simply because they were human and because they were babies and because they just happen to not be uh, born yet. 
And so we have seen this kind of thing happen from both parties, guys, from both parties. And yet, Paul's words here in Romans 13 are not a commentary on the character of those in authority, but rather on the origin of their power. And so what are we supposed to do with this as Christians? Because Paul's giving us this this unambiguous language about how God is sovereign in all this. And so every one of us is under this authority, but the twist is that it's not about the authority itself. It's about where it comes from. Let me, let me try to illustrate. And I've been, I've been trying to think of an illustration, but sometimes it's really impossible to illustrate things about God because God himself is the illustration. You know, like the Trinity, there is no really good illustration for the Trinity. You end up committing a heresy every time you try to illustrate him because there's nothing like him. And that itself is the illustration. There's, there's nothing. You can't say, well, water is these three different forms or the sun this way. All of those fail drastically to illustrate the triune God. And that is the point, that there is no God like our God. And so when it comes to the idea of God's sovereignty, I was thinking, and, uh, you know, I figured I would throw in a basketball illustration, you know. So I own a basketball team, guys. I own a fantasy basketball team. And for the record, I'm in first place right now. I am demolishing my league. But, um, but in this fantasy league, if, you've, if you're unaware of it, essentially what you do is this. At the beginning of the season, you draft players, and then those stats, just you put people in a lineup, and the stats go against one another. It's just a fun side hobby. And, uh, and so when you do that, here's the problem. Sometimes you'll draft a player, and they won't do what you want them to do. You know, that maybe they just uh, decide, you know what, I, uh, I don't really like basketball anymore. And you've taken your, your authority to put them on your team, and then they just don't produce the stats that you want them to produce. And sometimes they get hurt, and now you've put all of your assists, for one uh, example, into this player, and he's hurt for half the season, and now your team isn't doing what you want them to do. Listen, even that illustration falls short of what we're talking about here, but here's the point. When those kinds of things happen, there's still someone behind the system who is strategizing, who's thinking, who is managing the system. And when it comes to situations where we see Nero and, uh, and Tim and Stalin and others who are acting in ways ungodly, it doesn't mean that God himself is affirming those things. It just means that God is still sovereign on his throne, no different than whenever you are diagnosed with cancer or whenever you lose a loved one or whenever you have financial crisis or whatever it may be. Those things never ought to make us, because we saw this in Romans 8, right? Ought to never make us think, well, because of this, God must not be sovereign and in control. No, we already know that God works out all things to the good of those who love Jesus Christ. And so if he can do that with sufferings and trials and those kinds of evils, surely God is in control of any kind of evil of a person who's stepping outside and not representing the authority that God would uh, rather them have. Here's what this means for us, okay? Understanding that those that exist have been instituted by God, this is the point. It ought to transform how we interact with those in charge because it moves us beyond human perspectives of agreement or disagreement, beyond our personal preferences of partisan loyalties, and it calls us to a higher level of engagement where we do things like this. We pray for our leaders. We honor their role, even if we cannot do so with the person's decisions. And we respectfully uphold the justice and righteousness that are hallmarks of God's kingdom because we look beyond the leadership of the person that has gone astray and we look to the God who's reigning. All right? So every leader's power has a God-given origin and that ought to change the way that we view them because at the end of the day, they are still a person made in God's image who is acting the way they're acting because they don't know the mercy 
and grace of Jesus. And so we can get on social media all we want and talk bad about them, but let's focus on the ungodly decisions and let's pray for their soul. That changes the way that we view. And so now we must be asking, well, how do I respond really more practically, Pastor Jared, whenever we see leaders that have gone astray? Good question. Thank you for asking. Let's move on to our second point, which is this, that good deeds draw goodwill and reflect God's plan for leaders to support what's right and to correct what's not. And so look with me, verses three and four. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, there's that word again, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Let me just say real quick that when you vote, that it, I want you to imagine with me that what you're doing is you're taking a sword in your hand and you are saying, take this sword and I want you to wield it on behalf of me in the political sphere. That's the picture that is being given here. Now, it's a little bit different. We're going to see because of the word minister here in just a minute. But I want you to consider for a minute the, the context in which Paul is writing this to Christians living in Rome, all right, because it applies to us. Many Christians in Paul's day they were sub, and even the days after Paul, they were subjected to torture. They were burned alive. They were crucified. I mean, Jesus himself was crucified. They were mauled by wild animals in public arenas for entertainment simply because they were Christian. And this relentless campaign of terror created an atmosphere of fear and uncertainty for believers. So if we think that we are persecuted for our faith today, just think about the context that Paul's writing these words in. And so not only that of the fear of governing authorities, but also spiritually the pagan rituals that were occurring around the Christians living in this day, they were confronted with the allure of pagan practices and lavish spectacles of idolatrous worship uh, to the licentiousness of Roman festivities all around them. And so the early Christians, they faced a barrage of temptations. And, and so there was, uh, for example, Saturnalia, which was a popular festival dedicated to the god of Saturn, where societal norms were inverted, unrestrained revelry ruled the day. And during this event, drunkenness and promiscuity and excess were not only condoned, but they were encouraged in this, festi in this festival. The government uh, not only condoned this, but encouraged it. There was the, uh, the festival of Bacchanalia that wor worshipped the god Bacchus, which was fa famous for its hedonistic practices like sensual rituals, excessive drinking, and they abandon themselves to pleasure without regard for any kind of moral restraint or spiritual consequence. The government not only tolerated these things, but they endorsed it. And yet Paul has the audacity to say that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, who resists this has opposed the ordinance of God. How are we to respond to this. Well, Paul doesn't shy away from this, this, uh, this tension because the reality is his teaching is not an endorsement for their actions, of course. Hopefully we know this, but rather a call for Christians in the face of those things to live in such a way that transcends the immediate reality around them. It's about seeing the bigger picture. It's about understanding that, yes, we see these pagan things happening around us. We see mosques and temples and to, to, un, to, to uh, gods who are not gods, our versions of Saturnalia and, and, uh, and Bacchus. But what we see here is that when we see the bigger picture, that in doing good, 
in our communities, we become a testament to the justice and righteousness that come from God alone. And we play our part in God's story. So this is the key ingredient that, ingredient that Paul's giving us here in Romans 13. It, it underscores this dual affirmation so much as when we see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And for us, with our finite minds, we can't compute it all. And what we did is we walked away at the end of Romans 11 saying, you know, God, I can't understand it, but I'm going to trust the God who does. We can't understand how God can be fully in control and sovereign over ungodly leaders. But at the same time, we have to find our way to be honorable as we live out our faith in these kinds of communities. How do these things compute? We don't understand, but we have God's law for us that tells us that there are things that we can do that exemplify the kingdom of God in an ungodly nation. And so this is the key ingredient here, because when When we do what is good and right in the eyes of God, we not only receive approval from heaven, but we have the potential to impact and transform the earthly systems and structures around us. And this stands in contrast to some of the techniques that I see happening from the name of Christianity, which do not embody Christianity today. And uh, and the term that has often been used with this is the term Christian nationality, which is different, by the way, from Christian patriotism. There's nothing wrong with being proud of the good things about our country. When Veterans Day and things like that happen, we're thankful for those that have resisted tyranny in the world. So please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. When I say Christian nationalism, what I'm talking about is this. I'm talking about religious syncretism, which takes the, the faith and religion of Christianity and tries to merge it with an earthly kingdom and put those together in a way that says, this is my identity. And so syncretism is an attempt to combine inherently different or opposite religious or philosophical systems and doctrines and practices together. Let me illustrate what this looks like. We once had a vice president who, uh, who employed scripture, but literally replaced the name Jesus with the American flag. And he quoted Hebrews 12 too, and he said, let us run the race marked out for us to fix our eyes on old glory and what she represents. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you ought to be deeply offended at this because what's happened is we have taken, someone has taken from the the White House, taken the word of God about Jesus and took Jesus's name out of it and put a piece of cloth there and said, let's look to this as we run our race. Listen, that is ungodly and it is not Christian. And what's happened is we have merged an earthly kingdom with Uh, the heavenly kingdom. And what we've done is we have created something that is not of God. There's a theologian who once said the Bible has a technical term for someone who tries to combine religious and political power. That term is antichrist. And so we want to be careful as we carry out our faith, not to, not to try to do it upside down. So what does this mean? Listen, here's what it means. My job as your pastor is not to disciple you for what it means to be an American. My job as your pastor is to disciple you for what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ who happens to live in America. Don't misunderstand again, because when I say these things, sometimes people interpret it as, well, Pastor Jared is not a fan of America. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the priority of why we come together is to be ambassadors of the kingdom of God wherever we happen to live. We happen to live in America. And so we are Christians who live in America. And so we want to understand the order of this. Here's the deal. We don't need, nor do we want a government to save the church. We don't need a president to save Christianity. Jesus has done a good enough job for that. Amen? We don't need a president to save Christianity. We need Jesus to save the government, and we need Jesus to save our presidents. And here's where the point comes in, because we 
we have to say, are we Christians who happen to be Americans or are we Americans who happen to be Christians? Because there's a huge difference. We want to be proud of our country, but we also want a country that is worth being proud of. And that doesn't and cannot happen if we try to replace God with the country. And so here's the idea. We don't serve our country so much as we serve God and we serve God and that extends into our service as we minister to our community and to our country. Look at that word minister there in verse four. That word minister is actually the word servant. And so when we take the idea of a sword that we talked about a few moments ago and we combine that with the word minister, what it means is that we're not designed to be a sword that goes out like the crusaders and just knocks down everyone who happens not to claim Jesus as Lord. That's not, in fact, Jesus, when Peter did that, what did Jesus do? He told him not to do that. And then he healed the man who was coming at him with the sword. And so we ought to look at Jesus himself for how we operate with our patriotic fervor. And so this is a radical thing. And so for some of us, it's a hard thing because it suggests that the way we change the world is not from the top down, but from the bottom up. Because the reality is this, that, that what's happening in the White House is not as important as what's happening around the dinner table. Listen, moms, dads, grandpas, grandmas, guardians, whoever you are, you can make the greatest impact in this country whenever you take time out of your busy, distracted day to sit around a dinner, dinner table with those you love and talk to them about what it means to be a Christian serving the kingdom of God. And then what that looks like as you live that out in your community, in your state, and in your country. Go and serve in Congress if that's what God is calling you to do. And represent the Lord Jesus Christ in, in your actions there and show them the good will, the good nature, the good justice, because there is no such thing as justice if God doesn't exist. That's what people miss and what people forget. And so as we try to navigate this complex political landscape that we're seeing here, we see this compass that points us toward righteous living, assuring us that when we do good, we align ourselves with God's righteous living. But more importantly, it reminds us that when, we, when there are rulers who forget their divine mandate, our commitment to doing good becomes an even more powerful witness to the God who is the ultimate judge and ruler over all. So good deeds. Live out your faith with good deeds and do the things that God would expect you to do and show your leaders what it looks like for good loss uh, to be embedded in our country. Here's a third and final thing we see here. Our respective leaders and faithful fulfillment of civic duties reflect God's order. So Paul ends Romans 13 with giving us some concrete examples here. He says, uh, let's read it starting in verse five. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, so we don't want to be afraid of God's wrath merely. But we also want to do this. Why? Because of conscience sake, our conscience's sake. Verse six, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due to them. Tax to whom taxes do, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. I want you to notice in verse five, the word conscience. He refers to this internal moral compass that we have, that God has given us a sense of right and wrong. Laws, by the way, rest on the conscience that God has given us. And so it doesn't matter where you go in the world, there is this thing called natural law, and that natural law comes from God, and laws ought to uh, embody that. This is why laws that say 
that it is okay to kill innocent children in the womb is fundamentally wrong because it goes against the natural law that God has given us that we have the right to live. And so we embody that as we live out our faith and show that to a lost and dying world. And so it's not merely wrath, in other words. And so Paul then gives us these examples to underscore the importance of conscientious obedience to governing authorities, and ultimately to do this to promote the welfare of society. Because when we do the things he's talking about here in verses 6 and 7, and we, we act in accordance to God's law, and we're about to illustrate this, it, it, when man's law goes against God's law, what do we do? Well, we want to promote the welfare of societies. The tension here is that Christians are called to submit to authorities, but we're also guided by a conscious and formed by our faith. Sometimes those things come at odds against one another. There are things that we're asked to do and asked to contribute to and asked to do that really go against the natural law that God has given. So how does this work? Well, I want you to consider two men with me as we get ready to close, separated by centuries. The first one is Daniel. Daniel was a man who was exiled, uh, taken from his hometown, human traffic, you could even say, and he was taken to Babylon, and he is there, and he is put in an ungodly uh, kingdom, and, uh, and yet he's trying to do his faith, his best to live out his faith in an ungodly context. And, uh, and the story goes that he would pray faithfully to God. And so there were some advisors of King Darius during that time, uh, who, uh, who looked at Daniel, and they were jealous. They didn't like that Daniel was receiving favor from the one true God. And so they made a law that anyone who prayed over the next course of so many days would have to be thrown to any other God but the king would be thrown into a lion's den. And uh, what did Daniel do? Did he look at the law and say, well, the law says I can't pray, so I guess I'm not going to pray anymore. No, Daniel gives us an example. He says, well, the law says this, and I know the consequences, but I'm still going to pray. And not only did he pray, but he just did it still publicly. I mean, he could have probably tried to do a little bit more privately, but he did it publicly. And sure enough, they see him doing it. What happens? They go to the king. Daniel broke the law. Daniel broke the law. And the king knows. So the king puts him into a lion's den. And, uh, and guess what God does in his sovereignty? He closes the mouths of the lions. Listen, that is faith. This is what Paul's talking about here in Romans 13. Some of us, some of us are, are living in fear because of the election later this year, and we're afraid of what's going to happen or not going to happen. And, uh, and instead of representing the faithfulness and the trust and the confidence of a sovereign God in the midst of all this, we're, we're telling a lost and dying world that we're not so sure that God is still in control of this. Listen, he is. If God can close the mouths of lions, can you imagine what he can do? in our day and age. Now, take another man who lived right down the road from me where I grew up in Seven Points, Texas, named John Joe Gray, who is still there, uh, who has blocked himself off from all society and posted scripture references. In fact, I have a picture here. He posted scripture references on his fence and said, anyone who comes into this territory will leave in a body bag. And he has created his own militia and he has a compound there in Trinidad, Texas. His name is John Joe Gray. You can Google him. Not one of those pastor stories that I'm making up, right? And so he lives there, and there have been standoffs between governing authorities and him, and he does it in the name of Jesus. 
Let me ask you this. Between the illustration of Daniel and John Joe Gray, which one is doing a better job at promoting the welfare of society and testifying of a sovereign God? The answer is obvious. It's Daniel. But sometimes we want to act more like John Joe Gray than we want to act like Daniel. And that comes from a place of fear. Listen, corruption in the high seats doesn't shake our core. We respond with the grace and truth that God is the one steering the course. So when earthly powers falter, we always find stability in God's eternal reign. Now, as we close, I want to invite you to do something with me today. The conversation that we're starting today is going to be one that we are going to carry on through the rest of the year because we are in an election year and things are already getting hairy. And uh, what I want for for members of Tate Springs, those who call themselves followers of Jesus, what I want for us is to be the kind of Christians that the way that we communicate with people, the way that we converse with people, what we post on social media, our attitudes, our actions, our dispositions, our ones— that are not afraid of whatever is going to happen. Because quite frankly, yes, some scary things could end up happening in this country. But Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. And if we find ourselves in a lion's den in this country, what we want to do is, number one, testify of our confidence in the sovereign God. But number two, when we stand before God, not be ashamed by how fearful we acted in our modern day politics. And so here's the first thing. We introduced the Apologetics Club some weeks ago. And uh, one thing that we're going to be doing is book clubs. And so we'll read a book, and then we're going to have a time where we come up here and discuss that book and have a conversation that helps deepen our understanding of the subject that is in the book. And so one of the things is this. You can go right now to tastefreeze.com slash theapologeticsclub, and uh, there is a simple form where you just give your, your name and a couple of contact pieces. And what that'll do is it'll put you on a list, and here in the next uh, uh, few weeks or months as we prepare for the fall, we're going to have a book discussion uh, over a book that has to do with this subject so that we can come and have conversations and we can ask uh, more complex questions and see what the Word of God has to say about how we live out our faith in our country. That's one thing we, we, we want to do in the future, but here's what I want us to do right now. Let's put the next verse on the screen, Jeremiah 29.7. Our, our issues today, our issues today are not new. Because Jeremiah 29, 7 says this, Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Do you realize you're in exile? If you follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are in exile. You're not in Jerusalem, you're in Babylon. Once you understand that, things will start making sense and you won't live in so much fear. But as we live in Babylon, it ought to change the way that we think about the context that we're in. And so what we want to do is we want to pray to the Lord on behalf of the ungodly country that we find ourselves in, the ungodly context that we find ourselves in, because in its welfare, you will find welfare. And so I want us to pray this prayer together as a church. And the way I want us to do that is this. I want us to open up this altar, just like we do at the end of every sermon. And I just want to invite some of you to come and bend your knee and pray. And tell God that you have fears. Tell God that you have anxieties. Tell God that you're scared. And then just lay those things at the feet of Jesus this morning and say, Lord, I know I'm in exile, but I really need your help having the kind of faith that Daniel displayed.
Lord, don't let me be like that man who cuts himself off and, uh, from society and creates his own little militia and thinks that he's the only person in the world who gets it right because he's not promoting the welfare of anybody or anything. And he's dissected himself from the story that God wants to tell with his life as someone made in God's image. So may we be people that this lost and dying world outside of these walls look at as neighbors and say, man, they, they get it. There's something about them that, that truly wants to transform this community in the right way with justice and goodness. Make time in your busy days to sit around a dinner table with your family and with friends and with loved ones, not to talk about what you disagree with, but to, to unite around the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and use that as your catalyst for how we're going to vote and use that as your catalyst for what you're going to do and use that as your catalyst for how we're going to operate in this lost and dying world. And may we be a church that's a beacon of light in this community as we enter into this chaotic political season. So let's bow our heads together this morning and pray. Father, we know, Lord, that it is, it, it, as we said, it's divided. We're not the United States of America. We're the divided states of America. And Lord, we need your help because we know that you're in control. But Lord, it is so hard to hold on to that when we see the things that are coming out of the White House. And when we see that, Lord, we have a harder and harder time finding some kind of place to be when it comes to the parties that are offered to us. In times like these, Lord, we're faced with a similar decision like Daniel was. Are we going to, to give in and syncretize our faith and justify it in ways that turn it into something other than the gospel? Or will we honor the higher law, yours, in spite of the consequences? Lord, help us to put our eggs in the basket of the kingdom of God. We love this country. We're thankful for it. But Lord, it needs you. And I pray, God, that it would find you, not based on votes necessarily, but based on followers of Jesus who from the bottom up are impacting our communities, our states, and our country and that we see that trickle-up effect happen around us. Help us to raise sons and daughters who understand this. Help us to be a church that gets this. Help us to be people who represent this this fall. So, Lord, I pray that you would open up this altar as we bow our knees and just ask you to help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening. At Tate Springs, we believe God is telling a story of redemption that can only be found in Jesus Christ. If you'd like more information on how you can have that kind of a relationship, please visit tatesprings.com and let us know. We love you and want to help you discover your part in God's story.